Humans in Space, Midnight Anxiety, and Talking to Water. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life, and really whatever you want to talk about. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, a non-expert college dropout. What the heck? Why am I hosting a podcast? Because questions are important, and people should have a non-judgmental and supportive environment to be curious. So, let's get it started. I've just got to tell you how much I've been enjoying the liturgist tour called Tabs and Wafers, which is me and Michael Gunger crossing the country, not to the Northeast, sorry, although Northeast friends, we have some other things coming up for you. And we talk about um, community and friendship and spirituality and the war on drugs. And uh, it's really an unexplainable event. The venues we've gone to, these aren't churches, you know, we usually do stuff in churches or community centers, and this is like actual clubs where concerts and comedians do their thing. This is our first time trying that kind of experience, and uh, these venues have never had something like Tabs and Wafers happen, and so what I've been really interested in is hearing what security people and venue managers and bar managers describe Tabs and Wafers as, and the thing I've heard most often... (laughs) is that Tabs and Wafers is a stand-up comedy show where people cry a lot. <laughs> and that's just perfect. So uh, in typical liturgist fashion, the only way to understand it is to be there. It is a lot of fun. It really is. And I, I enjoy the mix of people that are there, you know. Uh, also in typical liturgist fashion, there's a mix of people who identify as Christians and people who don't. And it's just a really fun, fun fun dynamic to have. So in September, uh, on the 21st, we'll be in San Francisco, one of my favorite cities in America. September 27th, we'll be in Dallas. September 28th, Houston. September 29th, Austin, which will be the last Tabs and Wafers stop. Now, for those of you who are like, hey, I can't get near those cities. That's okay. We're going to release a Tabs and Wafers podcast after the tour is over. Also in Nashville, October 19th, I will be at the Christian Transhumanist Conference, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, So if you want more information on any of those events and you want to grab tickets, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Events tab, and uh, you'll be able to find out everywhere I'll be and get all the information you need. Hi, Mike. This is Deacon Godsey from Lawrence, Kansas. I have two questions. One is a little bit longer and more detailed, so I'll send that in a separate message. This one is pretty straightforward. I was wondering if you had seen the article on Wired Magazine entitled, Are Humans Fit for Space? A Herculean Study Says Maybe Not. And it uh, outlines the scientific studies that were done on the twin brother astronauts 
and uh, the evidence seeming to suggest that human bodies are just simply not designed or evolved to the point where we can tolerate sustained uh, spaceflight over long periods of time. And just wondered if you had thoughts on that article, on the studies that went into it, and on its implications for future Mars missions. Thanks. Deacon, it's so good to hear from you. And uh, I shouldn't be surprised that you sent a question uh, with an article I hadn't read but wanted to. So uh, I completely missed that uh, piece by Wired. And I just thank you for sharing it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, For those of you listening who haven't read Are Humans Fit for Space uh, in Wired magazine, uh, just go to asklinksmike.com. Click on episode 190, and in the show notes, I'll have a link to that article. And uh, it is really, really good. Uh, It's very well written. It's very thorough. It's very accessible. It's everything I look for in science journalism. Uh, The reason I missed it is I've been super busy uh, finishing up my next book. Uh, So the last week, um, last two weeks, really, have I was in Alaska in the Arctic Circle and then working on the book. So I've been kind of, you know, completely disconnected from media uh, for yeah, 14, 15 days now. Uh, more about the book later. I don't want to waste your question talking about my book, other than to say that's why I missed that article. And uh, here's what happened in that piece. We, You know, we already know that spaceflight is hard, and we'll get into why that is as we talk more. But how dramatically does living and traveling in space affect the human body? Well, now we have uh, some interesting data uh, in the form of a twin study. Um, So we had an astronaut who had a twin, and uh, they went through a parallel set of physical examinations while one spent uh, over a year in space and the other uh, stayed on the surface of the Earth. Um, which is fascinating. Twin studies are really, really great ways to start teasing out the interplay between genetics and environment. Um, But we want to say right up top that this was a twin study with a very small sample size. It was just one set of twins. Twin studies usually involve multiple sets of twins. And then, you know, where one complete set of twins can act as a control group, as opposed to one half of a pair of twins acting as a control group. Because this twin study only involved one set of twins, we don't know if what was seen in the uh, study was caused by being in space or being in a highly stressful environment. The International Space Station is stressful. It's loud. There's a lot of mechanical equipment there. It's smelly. Uh, not only body odor and and off-gassing plastics, but uh, space itself has a smell, or rather things that have been in space or exposed to space, smell something like fireworks, actually. Um, We don't know why. It probably comes down to radiation. But uh, launch and landing is also really stressful on the body because of the intense G-forces that your body goes through. Um, so there's a lot of stress involved in space travel. We do know that a lot of things happen and we saw happen in this study. Uh, your intracranial pressure increases in space, uh, because your body relies on gravity to drain fluids out of your head and, 
and that doesn't happen without gravity and people can have eye troubles you see a a, a cognitive decline over time uh, the longer you're in space although a lot of that um, returns to baseline within six months of getting back on the earth but not all of it uh, there are some permanent physical and genomal changes that happen to people who stay in space for a long time, right? So there's real effects, real impacts on the human body from space travel. So what do we do? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, this, this study just gave more specifics on something that I already knew to be true, which is that spaceflight is very dangerous. It's very difficult for humans. And that's saying something because humans are remarkably adaptable animals. If you think about it, uh, our physiology, our bodies are set up to help us survive in equatorial hot humid environments. That's kind of our native range. Uh, now, I'm a, 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 a human of European descent, so I've got this pale skin and this straight hair. Uh, the pale skin is designed to help me you know, get more vitamin D with less sun exposure. The straight hair is to help me uh, let water, you know, uh, not designed, but adapted to allow water to flow more easily off my body in a rainy environment, right? So my my DNA is from the British Isles, and a lot of my physical features are adapted to that, but not quite, because I still have this capacity to sweat. Uh, like all humans, I'm a tropical primate, and I have a, a, a phenomenal cooling capacity. Uh, and with, if you just took someone like me and just plopped me in the British Isles without civilization, without shelter, without clothing, I'd freeze to death. So what's remarkable is that I have these changes, this, this straight hair, this pale skin, and yet uh, still most of the fundamental features of a tropical ape because humans can adapt environments to themselves by building shelter, by creating clothing, right? We're great at adapting environments to ourselves. I just spent several days in the Arctic Circle. It was remarkable that humans can survive, even thrive in such challenging environments. But space is another level of challenging. Um, because everywhere on Earth, we have two essential things for human life. Number one is a really consistent gravity well. We've evolved in the 9.8 meters per second squared gravity well of Earth. And our body relies on that gravity to keep our fluids circulating through our body, to maintain muscle and bone density. Uh, and number two, the Earth has a, um, a magnetic field. And that magnetic field actually protects us from most of the radiation happening in space. When we leave our atmosphere... And when we get into microgravity environments, we lose those two things, and it's really, really difficult on our bodies. That means a mission to Mars is a very risky proposition. The longest we've had someone in space is about a year, and that's in a low Earth orbit, still with some protection from the Earth's magnetosphere. A Mars mission could take three years or more. During that time, astronauts would be in microgravity, most of the time, they'd be on Mars. They'd be in a low-gravity environment. Mars doesn't have a magnetosphere, and there'd be a lot of radiation exposure. It'd be very dangerous to the immune systems of those astronauts. Uh, it would increase their risk for cancers. 
they'd be at risk of permanent cognitive impairment. These are significant challenges. But they're not unsolvable, in my opinion, through engineering. We can simulate gravity with centrifugal force. That's why in sci-fi movies you see these rotating space stations, right? We can create really sophisticated shielding for spacecraft. One idea that I've seen is to store the water, both the clean water and the wastewater and the recycling system, uh, converting wastewater back into clean water on the outside of a spacecraft because water is a great radiation shield. So it's not that these are unsolvable problems in engineering, but it is that they are challenging and expensive problems. Um, Ultimately, it's probably most viable uh, to build interplanetary spacecraft in orbit, and that means we'd have to build an orbital supply chain, manufacturing facilities. Um, Might make sense to start getting our materials from asteroids instead of blasting them off the surface of the Earth and rockets, right? So this becomes a very, very sophisticated um, effort. We'd have to build a space economy. And uh, with no guarantee that it's ever financially viable in and of itself. That's a big risk. So it's a political question of whether humans could be fit for space and space travel. Um, I think exploration of space is important, obviously. Uh, But I, I don't like to treat space like a backup plan for the species. We've got a great planet right here that we're just treating horribly. And my first priority is to learn to treat this planet better. And actually, that's part of why I support space travels. When we send people, yes, but also robots to other celestial bodies, we learn more about how our planet formed, how our climate cycles function, and ultimately learning about Venus and Mars and Europa and other planets and moons in our solar system can help us better understand how to take care of Earth, our marvelous and miraculous home, which we are certainly fit for. And I wonder if perhaps learning to take care of the Earth, which we are fit for, could ultimately enable us to be fit for space travel. If we're going to explore other worlds, it's going to take the brilliance of today's children to get us there. And that's why I'm so excited that KiwiCo is a sponsor of Ask Science Mike. KiwiCo is a learning company, but hold on, not that kind of learning company. They're not boring. (laughs) KiwiCo creates hands-on learning experiences in the field of STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. And I absolutely love KiwiCo. The way it works is you get a subscription, And they send a developmentally appropriate uh, kit to your child every month. And you can pick different lines of Kiwi Crate. Some are more craft-centered. Some are more uh, engineering-centered. And you can change at any time. My teenage children, teenage children, love their Kiwi Crates. I love that it gets them off their screens and gets them doing something hands-on for learning. I've also loved the way that building something helps my kids learn the principles behind it and ultimately helps them excel in school. And the only reason I want them to excel in school is to learn how to excel in life. So 
KiwiCo is going to do something really, really great for listeners of Ask Science Mike. If you go to KiwiCo.com slash science, they will send you a crate for free, completely risk-free, so you can try KiwiCo in your home. Again, just visit KiwiCo.com slash science to redeem your completely free crate. Our next question came in from email, and it reads, Hey, Mike, just have a quick question for you. I found some very intriguing videos online by a scientist named Maraso Emoto. He claims that his experiments show that our words and tone of voice have an effect on plants and water crystal formation. Is there any legitimacy to this guy's work, or is it bullshit? Thanks for all you do on this show and the Liturgist Podcast. Josiah. Uh, yeah, Maraso Emoto's work is actually pseudoscience, or as you put it, bullshit. I get questions about it quite often, and let's be honest, the videos are, in fact, quite fun to watch. <laughs> I also think, I don't think Maraso uh, is a charlatan in that I think he believes what he's sharing. It's just not based in science. Uh, effectively, and you, you know, I'll, I'll give you some links if you want to look into this more, uh, his work is just full of methodological errors. He doesn't have proper controls. Um, he's very selective in what data he gathers. Uh, he's very selective in how he interprets that data. So there's no way to really mitigate bias introduced in his observations. And uh, I, th you know, as far as I'm aware, his work is universally rejected by the scientific community. Ouch. Um, so no, uh, I mean, you know, our words and tone of voice certainly have some effect on water crystal formation. I mean, you know, sound pressure waves do interact with water, I suppose, but probably not a measurable effect uh, like he's talking about. Um. That doesn't mean I don't think there's value in, in contemplating the notion that our posture in the world affects the world. Uh, this is non-scientific, but I have found that um, certain ways of being as I'm in my garden and feeding my birds, if I walk a certain way and move a certain way, then the birds don't fly away when I fill the uh, feeders and I can have some really great encounters with wildlife. So I get kind of the point that's trying to be made, but no. Uh, he's, his work is not rigorous. It's not scientific. It's just something fun to see on YouTube. Okay. Here's another email question. Hey, Mike, love your podcast question. I often find that as I try to fall back asleep after waking in the middle of the night, that my thoughts tend to be a bit negative and fearful, such as thinking of embarrassing situations from the past. Or think about what would happen if a certain friend or family member passed away soon. Is there any reason for these thought tendencies? Thank you for your time and your thoughts. What a wonderful question that I think is very, very common. Lots of people experience those kinds of nighttime anxieties. Um, unfortunately, the causes of nighttime anxiety are not well studied. But the interaction of nighttime anxiety is well studied. Here's what I mean. I can't scientifically answer why 
you have anxiety at night. What I can tell you is not getting enough sleep increases nighttime anxiety and that can create a vicious cycle, right? So we don't know what's causing it initially, but we know this can be a self-reinforcing cycle. So it's really important to try and maintain good sleep hygiene uh, in order to avoid this cycle deepening, you know, going to bed at a predictable time, avoiding caffeine before bed, avoiding alcohol before bed, uh, avoiding screens for an hour before bed, avoiding physical activity right before bed, all those sorts of things. Uh, keeping your room very dark, you know, white noise can help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, improve your quality of sleep. It will lessen the amount of anxiety that you experience. You didn't say in your question whether you have anxiety during the day or not, uh, but we do understand that people with anxiety disorders are more likely to have these kinds of nighttime uh, anxiety events. And if you have an anxiety disorder, and I will have a link uh, on Ask Science Mike to help you start to uh, see if you may or not, then treating the anxiety disorder itself can help. I could pontificate on where nighttime anxiety comes from, you know, using a lot of things I've read. I'm reticent to do that. I mean, I feel like it would give you a more comforting answer, but especially right after a question about a pseudoscientist, I don't want to just, <laughs> just riff on where nighttime anxiety comes from. Um, I just say, you know, you really, really, really want to work on your sleep hygiene. It happens to me sometimes. I don't have a lot of anxiety. Um, most of the time, but I do have seasons where I wake up in the middle of the night and, uh, taking off my science educator hat for a second and putting on my, your friend on the podcast hat, something that has worked for me when my normal, you know, self-hypnosis, uh, sleep routine fails is to listen to the anxiety, realize that it's coming from me and that the reason I have the anxiety and I'm worrying about something in bed is my brain's actually trying to troubleshoot potential problems in the future to come up with strategies that that's one of the most amazing things the human brain can do. So I flipped the script on my nighttime anxiety instead of dreading it or fighting it or succumbing to it. I thank it. I say, gosh, thank you for protecting us. Thank you for watching out for us. I really appreciate it. And now, let's go to sleep, worrying brain and I. Let's go to sleep together. And just kind of that uh, being aware when anxiety is coming, interrupting it instead of fighting it, kind of expressing gratitude for it, and then uh, just letting my thoughts drift away. You know, that's, it's, that's a, a riff on cognitive behavioral therapy, but for me, it really does help me get back to sleep. Okay, last question this week is another email question. Hi, Science Mike. I have a question all the way from Australia about history, maybe even science, and the Bible. I am at university, and two major areas of study for me are sociology and agriculture. Through what I have picked up over the last few years, I've come to associate the idea of the fall with humans' transition from hunter-gatherer to agricultural society. Hear me out. In the Bible, Adam is cursed to work the ground, 
while Eve is cursed, to paraphrase, the patriarchy. <laughs> That's clever. When humans started to farm and settle, we got possessive over land and women. We got a bunch of diseases from living in our own shit. And I would add also living among animals. Uh, we damaged the environment and developed systems of wealth and oppression. I once even heard agriculture described as humanity's biggest mistake. Ooh, wow. If this is true, then it really seems like transition to agriculture bears a strong resemblance to the ideas of the fall or original sin or whatever. I can't see any way that the authors of Genesis could have possibly known all this, but I can't help but wonder if this is somehow more than a coincidence. Having long since rejected fundamentalist ideas of Adam, Eve, and sin, I've been struggling to find meaning in the story of the fall. And this explanation is so far the only thing that has come close to making any sense of such a bizarre story. So my question is, what are your thoughts on all this? Is it purely coincidence? Or is there any chance the Bible could intentionally be making this connection? Thanks for the work you do, Christabel. Oh, gosh. Um, this is why I love Genesis. <laughs> I haven't been a biblical literalist in a long time, but I do love the Genesis creation poem. I, I think I enjoy it more today than I ever did in the past, including when I thought it was a literal telling of the formation of the cosmos at the hands of a being God. Why do I love it so? Because Genesis reminds me that ancient people were not less intelligent than modern people, right? They had the same capacity to think about the why behind how the world works. They were just as curious as we are, maybe even more so. They had the same quirk in their brains that we have in ours, which is that we have a capacity to imagine what other people are thinking and something called a theory of mind that is common to social animals. But we project consciousness onto things that, to my knowledge, aren't conscious at all. That's how our theory of mind creates things like religion. It's fascinating. And so you can imagine these ancient people in a culture that had a mix of nomadic and agrarian lifestyles. They were living closer to the natural world than we do today. So they had a lot of time to observe wild things, but they also, whether they were agrarian or nomadic, uh, had a significant investment in animal husbandry. So they had close encounters with different domestic animals, largely sheep. And if you're wondering how the world came into being and you're a human, you're going to spend a lot of time wondering what's different between me and a sheep? Why? I mean, we, there's something clearly different about us, but what is different? And if you thought about that long enough, you'd probably come up with something like, well, I understand morality. I have a knowledge of good and evil. And because of that knowledge, I'm the one taking care of the sheep. And gosh, in a lot of ways, it looks like sheep have the easier life. <laughs> right? 
if you're a human and you look at the natural world, wild animals appear to be carefree. That's not true, by the way. Wild animals uh, encounter significant stress on a near constant basis. Predators are always hungry. Prey are always trying to not be eaten. But from our perspective, it looks like it's easier to not be a human than to be a human. Mainly because we worry so damn much. So for me, of course the Bible makes those connections because Genesis is an attempt for uh, the people of Abraham some 3,500 years ago to make a more modern riff on some other ancient creation poems with a different kind of God and a different relationship to people. And it was a bit more philosophical than like a you know prior Babylonian myth. And I think that's cool as hell. I don't think it means that like there was some uh, anachronistic anthropological insight in the Genesis creation poem. I don't think God like snuck in a little, you know, modern era <laughs> anthropology into an ancient text as a clue for us that there's a divine being looking over all this. I just think the authors of Genesis were very clever had great observations, and they came up with, frankly, a hypothesis for how the world could have come into being and turned that into a mythology that allowed them to find collective meaning as a people. That's what humans do best. I'm all for it. That's why I love Genesis so much. You have survived yet another episode of Ask Science Mike. Congratulations. <laughs> I'd like to thank all of my patrons who make this show possible. Uh, if you'd like to join them, you get to pick the questions of the show, get a little additional interaction with me. And we're going to do a patron-only show again in the near future. You can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash science mic or ask science Mike. I don't know. So go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Patreon button. Oh, gosh. By the way, keep sending in your questions. You know, the downloads for the show uh, are up, probably higher than they've ever been. But the number of questions we get has never been lower. It's actually fallen dramatically over the last year. So I don't know if you all are running out of questions or just assume yours will never have a chance to air. Uh, but right now, you have the best chance you've ever had to get a, show, a question on Ask Science Mike. So if you want to submit a question, just go to AskScienceMike.com, scroll down to the bottom, and you can type out a question via email or record a voicemail for the show. Uh, we'd love to hear your question either way. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for production and sound design. I'd like to thank uh, Caitlin Hermstad for producing Ask Science Mike, Jeb Botterford for writing the theme song, and the patrons for making the show possible. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I can't wait to talk to you next week.